Welcome to the first episode of the African Developers Podcast. My name is Kesir. I am your host. My guest today is Delali Vogbe. Delali is a software engineer originally from Ghana, but he's currently working with the African Leadership University in Mauritius. Delali, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Kesir. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's exciting to be here. I should be thanking you for being willing to be my guinea pig. <laughs> You're the first person I'm interviewing. <laughs> Yeah, I, I. So yeah, thank I, you. You're welcome. I I do not mind in the least being a guinea pig. This the the stakes are really low here, so happy to do it. What is African Leadership University, and why do they need software developers? That's I mean that's an interesting question because I don't think that universities would typically build like a dedicated developer team as we've done, but. I think it's a necessary thing, and I think you'll understand why. So, the African Leadership University is a—it's more—it's like a network of tertiary institutions um, spread across the African continent. Well, at least that's the idea. We currently have a campus in Mauritius and one in Rwanda, and the idea is to build twenty-five campuses across the continent um, within the next fifty years um, to produce three million young African leaders. And the method of doing that is to rethink the way traditional edu tertiary education has been delivered in the last few centuries, to develop a way that is more in line with the advancement of the world since then. Um, tertiary education has been pretty static in the last few years or a few centuries, and um, we think it's time for that to be undone. Um, so why do we need developers? A lot of um, our approach to rethinking tertiary education is in the uh, paradigm of technology. And we think that by having tertiary education and technology surrounding it catch up with what's possible in, the, in, the, in today's world is important to getting students where they need to be. What are your responsibilities, Dalali? What do you do day-to-day -day at ALU? Uh, that's interesting because you described me as a software engineer. Um, and it's, it's hard for me to label myself at ALU. It's, the university was established in 2015, so in many ways we're a startup university. And as with startups, there's a, it's a sort of a blur between roles and, and you just need to do what you need to do to get the job done. Um, and so I found myself doing a number of different things at ALU, from you know, building things out myself, implementing um, technology to product management. So on a, on a typical day, I could be on the phone with... Um, external developers who we contract. Um, I could be in a room with facilitators, our faculty who we call facilitators, um, trying to figure out their pain points and translate those into um, features that um, I would then build out or have built out by external developers. I could be in a room with students figuring out their pain points. So I do a number of different things. I, I do what I guess you could call product management and setting direction of our learning management system and, and how we build it out, or just doing development myself. So yeah, so I, I think I oscillate between those two roles. I see. I'm wondering, like, how do you feel about wearing all those hats? Personally, I've been in that situation before where I've had to take up like a lot of responsibilities and I sort of have mixed feelings about it. Mm. I, I'll be curious to, 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 to get to know how you felt, but anyway, I'll, I'll, I'm the one being interviewed here. So, um, but, but how I feel about it, I, I think I've, I've gone through different feelings about it. I think when I first joined ALU, 
I wanted to be a developer. That's what I wanted to be. And at first, having to wear these hats um, disoriented me a little bit. And I, and I felt as if I wasn't developing in the areas that I would like to because, you know, context switching is expensive. And if you're context switching constantly between, you know, these different roles, you're very likely not doing any one of them very well. Um, and I think if your goal is to become, you know, um, a developer or like a senior developer who then becomes, I don't know, if you want to progress, you know, linearly through the developer um, or like, I guess, along the developer ladder, maybe that's not that's not for you. And in the beginning, I felt that way. Uh, but I think I enjoyed um, later on doing all of the different things once I um, understood how to do those things. And I had to learn very quickly on, on the job. But I've gotten to a point where I, I quite enjoy um, doing product management and talking to users and whatnot. And I think that that sort of dynamic works if you're interested, you know, more in the high-level ideas um, around developing a product rather than just, you know, being in the nitty-gritties and getting things done. And I think that I enjoy um, the former quite a bit. Um, I've had, yeah, I've had a lot of fun figuring out direction um, for the products. I've had a lot of fun talking to users, um, figuring out what um, needs to be built. And I've had a lot of fun designing and then handing off things I've designed for implementation. But I think that's only happened later on in my time here. And only after I decided that um, I wasn't sure that I wanted to be, you know, um, a developer, um, you know, going forward, which is an interesting thing. Uh, but I think that I'll be, I think that that's where I'm, I'm headed. Um, and so this works for me. Right. So I, I had mixed feelings because of the, there's this sense of inadequacy, feeling a little bit incompetent doing all those other roles. So at the beginning, I had made up my mind, I wanted to be a software developer. And then I entered this organization and I had to take up all those roles. Yeah, it was a bit disorienting at first. I, I felt like I was not prepared. So I had this constant imposter syndrome. It was just too many things that I wasn't sure I knew how to do. Yeah. And and there was a constant sense of, I'm not doing it well. I'm not right. good enough. Right. Yeah. But I think overall, it was a great experience because it, it allowed me to like try my hands on different things and figure out what I enjoy and what I do not. Right. But so have you settled on that you're not interested in doing product management and you'd rather um, focus on software engineering? So that's the thing. I think back then I was not prepared to manage people and all of that. But I feel like now I'm a little more prepared, so I wouldn't mind doing it again. Right. And in my future, in my future, I do see myself having to do that. So Right, exactly. Right. For me, for me, what excites me about that is you I think you get to be more a lot more involved in building a product than if you were just um, you know, wiring it. And and in the beginning, I think one of the things I dealt with was not seeing a tangible contribution I was making to the product. If I wrote code and that code was sitting in the cloud somewhere, on a server somewhere, and people accessed it, I would I would be able to see people like, you know, touching the features I had built. Um, but I think that there's value in both places. Mm -hmm. And I think that also um, I think my skill set um, puts me in a place where I can actually maybe add better value than if I was building it myself. And that was also a hard place to reach. Um, being able to, like, telling myself that, 
hmm, maybe you're better placed to be um, a product manager than a software engineer. Um, but I'm, at this point, I'm towing both lines and I'm, I'm enjoying it while I have both of them. I, I think that um, very soon, though, I will have to um, make a decision and move in one direction or the other. I see. So let, let's talk a bit more about software development. Uh, are you doing any software development at ALU? Yes, I, I do quite a bit of software development right now. Um, first, let me start off by explaining how we think about learning technologies at ALU. We think that there's, there are technologies that exist and that we shouldn't be reinventing the wheel. Um, and where we can use things that are available, we should. Um, and so the learning management system we use at ALU is Open edX. And Open edX powers edX.org. Um, and I'm, and I'm sure people are familiar with um, edX.org. It's, it's, it's like Coursera, um, where you can go and find um, free or paid for courses to enroll in. But the, the interesting thing is that the builders of edX, um, who are largely MIT and Harvard University, um, have open sourced um, their, the entire stack. You know, so you will find an open edX repository on GitHub um, that allows you to install open edX on a server and run it yourself. And it's built with extension in mind. So you'll find that um, there's a lot of documentation. That's one of the things I'm really grateful for. It's really heavily documented. And you'll find that there's documentation allowing you to extend the platform in many different ways. It builds very modularly. So you can pick it up and add modules to it. And that's what we use at ALU. So speaking about specific technologies, um, it's built with um, the Django web framework. And so it's um, Python in the back, Mako in the front. What is Mako? Mako is a templating language. I think, so, so I think it's mostly for Python. So you can do some very interesting things in the front. Um, so Mako is actually used by Reddit, I think. So reddit.com has Mako in the front. And, and that you know, delivers a lot of views but yes, so Mako is, is, is pretty robust. And so you'll find Mako on the front of um, edX and Python in the back, although that is shifting quite a bit. In the last few years, edX has made the decision to move to React on the front, which is a very interesting thing. That was quite predictable, actually. This is a question that I was going to ask you. Uh -huh. If, if OpenEdX was all server-side rendering or if there was some client-side rendering, so React or Vue, Right, right. I mean, I think it's, yeah, I think it's, it only makes sense to shift in that direction for a number of reasons. I mean, there's popularity and there's also ease of use and utility. And just generally the way that um, these front-end frameworks have thought about rendering and the front-end and what you can do with it. So I'm, I'm happy about the direction it's, it's heading in. And so, for instance, at ALU, we very recently made a decision to, to take the leap. And so the new things we're building are all built in React rather than Mako. And yes, so that's what typically I spend my time doing. Um, I spend my time writing a lot of Python and a lot of Mako, but these days um, moving towards React, which is interesting for me because, I mean, there was a wave of front-end frameworks that have hit the scene in the last few years. And I've, I've seen um, a mad scramble towards gaining proficiency in those um, but I just never did it, uh, which is interesting. Well, maybe that's untrue because I have done quite a bit of Angular. I, why, why did I just say that? I, I have done quite a bit of Angular JS development, 
Yeah. There's this thing, there's this concept called just-in-time learning, <laughs> meaning you learn something when you need it. Right. Because there, there's just so many things, especially in the JavaScript ecosystem, right. like so many new things coming out all the time and you can't possibly learn all of them. Exactly. I, I don't think that there's utility in, you know, um, following trends necessarily just because they are trends. I think, I think it's interesting if you want to explore technologies just for the sake of exploring them and saying that you know, I'm, I'm curious how the, the the developers of this product thought about it. Um, what, what sort of programming ideologies are they implementing? You know, I think that's an interesting exercise in exploration and that's something that I want to do more of. Um, so take Vue and take React and take Angular and, you know, different technologies and not necessarily learn them, but understand their positioning and their ideologies. Um, I think that's an interesting thing to do, but I I don't think that it is necessarily useful to you to try and become proficient in all of the things. First of all, there's there's no way you can, and it will be an exercise of utility, and I think that you'll end up um, feeling really crappy about yourself because you very likely will be unable to gain the proficiency that you will be looking for in all of those things. Um, so yes, so at ALU, that's what I do most of, like most of my building is um, using Python and Mako and then now React. But around that, there's just so many technologies um, that make the NX stack work. And so I, I've had to do a fair bit of learning in those areas as well. For instance, to, to do NX development locally, you need to run an entire server, right? Um, because it is, um, to Django app, you need to have it running on some sort of a server and then access it in your browser and whatnot. So to make that happen, I use like a Vagrant machine. So we, de- we depend very heavily on Vagrant machines to um, for our development um, at ALU. There is the Python and um, running running all of the stuff you're building, but then there's also, you know, queuing of jobs and there's RabbitMQ and there's, um, there's so many different things that need to be running that setting up a, a development environment yourself and doing all of the installations is going to be a pain. So most of the time, the community leaves that to somebody to take up. And so there's actually like a really um, active open source community around the open edX learning management system. Vagrant does things wonderfully. And, and, and I think I've spent time building out a flow that works. Um, so I have a Vagrant machine um, and then I have... PyCharm by IntelliJ, which is such a wonderful um, product. JetBrains makes arguably the best, <laughs> the best ideas. They're incredible. They really yeah. are. Um, and, and, and once you invest some time in learning your idea and setting it up, you'll find that things, your workflow just becomes so much tighter and so much more enjoyable. Um, yep. It so, becomes an extension of you. Ex- exactly. Amazing. I'm I'm curious. How did how did you get into programming? So so I my introduction to programming came pretty late in my life. I think relatively to a lot of people. Um, before I entered university, I had no idea what programming was. Like, and and this is funny to me now because, like, what? How did I think computers were put together? I just never asked myself that question. And so I, my my introduction to programming happened when I had to take a mandatory course in my university. So I went to Ashesi University College in Ghana, and it's a liberal arts college that requires you to take 
uh, a few mandatory classes in your first year. So classes across math, writing, programming, um, and I and I took a programming one, one class, which was an introduction to programming. Full disclosure, I I also went to HSC University. In fact, Delali and I were in the same class. Indeed, indeed we were. Yes, uh, when we took our programming one class together, and and that class was was an interesting class because for the first time I understood how computers worked and I understood how people built programs and and it completely changed my trajectory. I entered. Um, university thinking that I wanted to um, pursue something in the humanities, although Ashesi at the time didn't offer that. So I don't know, even know how I expected to fulfill that desire. But I ended up at Ashesi and took this program in one class and, and it completely blew my mind um, to use a pedestrian term. Um, yeah, so that's, that was my introduction. And since then, I have you know pursued programming. After, after that program in one class, I decided that um, I was going to do management information systems, um, which is, as I should say, some blend between business administration and computer science. So uh, when it was time after my first year to declare a major, I, I declared that I wanted to do management information systems. But after taking uh, my programming two class, which was an introduction to Java and object-oriented programming, I, I decided that there was, there was no way I was going to not do uh, pursue computer science. Um, and so I spent the rest of my four years at Hachesi doing that. Um, I remember there was a time where I was in two minds about moving between management information systems and um, computer science. And I, I went and, and, and saw one of my professors who, who has had a really great impact on my trajectory in, in studying computer science and also you know, having a career in it. Um, Dr. Ayoko Kosa went and saw him and said I was you know, worried about doing computer science because I wasn't sure about you know, the prospects for me in the job market, which now is a really laughable thing. But at the time, I, I had a real, real fear that I was going to go into this field and then come out of school and be unemployable. Yeah, I guess I guess at that point you you don't really know what the what the job market looks like. So I, I think your fear your fears were justified. I I had a similar issue. I had the fear of missing out. Right. So looking at MIS, I saw that they had business and and computer science. I was like, hmm, business and, <laughs> and computer science is probably better than just computer science. Right. Best of both worlds. Yeah. So I I went round asking seniors uh, their opinion, and at the end of the day, I, I decided to stick to computer science. Was there anything that you know took you over the line and said, uh, "This is the right decision"? To be honest, I wasn't that interested in business. <laughs> in fact, in fact, for me, it was I think it was more extreme than that. I wasn't. It wasn't that I wasn't interested in them. I didn't like them. So so as part of my MIS program, I had to take a fin- financial accounting class in my first year, in my second year, the first semester of my second year. And I and I did not enjoy it, not in the least. And that that's with like with my interest in programming led me to computer science. You know, I I, I, I tested the waters and I found that I didn't like it. And so I, I, I had to um, you know switch majors um, towards the end of my second year in the Chelsea. Which is quite rare, right? Right. Most most people switch from computer science to business uh, <laughs> or, or to MIS. There are very few people who, who do the opposite. That is true. That is true. I remember a class a class had quite high attrition in their second year. Um, 
you know, when, when we first declared our majors, a lot of people wanted to do computer science. And then towards the end of that year, quite a few people dropped out of computer science and did MIS or, you know, went sh- straight to business. Um, so I, I think you're right. I do have an unlikely story. But yeah, for me, it was the right decision. And I completely enjoyed it. And I think it also um, was, was perfect for the kind of person I was. Um, I think I had the aptitude for it, which, which, which is something that I thought about later on and realized was the case. Um, because growing up, I, I spent a lot of time building things with my hands. Um, I really, really enjoyed the process of taking something from nothing to a tangible product. So I would, in the morning when I woke up um, or during my vacations, you know, go into the shed and find planks of wood and build things myself. So I built a basketball rim for myself. I had a world that make like the rim and I, I, you know, sourced the backboard and the stand and I built all of that myself. I got a dog when I was like 15 and I built a dog kennel from scratch, you know, so I enjoyed, I enjoyed building stuff myself. Um, and this was taking the idea of building from the physical paradigm into like a programming one. And it gave me the same satisfaction. Looking back at your four years at Ashesi, are there any things that stand out? Oh, you already mentioned Dr. Ayoko Kosa. Yeah, she's, she's an amazing person. She's, she's an amazing professor. I, um, she's an amazing professor, an amazing person period. She, she's been extremely instrumental to my journey, and I've said that already, but I think this will explain it a little more. So at Ashesi, I took um, no fewer than three classes with her, and those were probably the highlights of my uh, my time at Ashesi. And Same here. Yeah. yeah we, took, we took programming two with her, which was an introduction to Java and um, um, object-oriented programming. I took uh, my robotics class with her, same. I took my data structures and algorithms class with her as well. And I think I took an extra class, which was algorithms. Yes, you did algorithms. I didn't yeah, take that I class. Did. I didn't take that class, um, which towards the end of my time at Ashesi sort of came back and bit me in the, in the butt. My thesis would have done great um, with, with the, the algorithms class. I think my thesis would have been significantly easier if I'd spent time thinking through um, the development of algorithms. But, but it, was, it, was, it was great. She was, she was my thesis professor and it was great. But anyway, going back to the question about my highlights throughout Ashesi, I think that you know, my second year was where I really decided that, okay, this I really want to do this. And so from that point on, I, I, I spent time doing things that I found really interesting in the space. I guess the first thing um, that stands out is um, being part of the ARX program. That's, again, Dr. Corsa, um, put together with other um, um, professors at Ashesi. And I got the chance to be... So what ARX is, is at that time, was the Ashesi Robotics Experience, which has now um, grown into a larger um, Ashesi Innovation Experience. I think it's what it's called now, AIX. Um, and so we would have students come, give them a crash course in robotics for a week. And at the end of that week, they would have enough skill to um, build out, build a robot, program it, and have this complete a final challenge. So um, at first I was a, a facilitator for students. So I had a group that I was um, teaching and taking through this entire week and then helping um, get to the point where they could program their robots. And then for the next edition, I was a program manager. I don't know if we called it that, but what I did then was um, more high level. I would help think through the challenges, you know, think through the final challenges that um, students would um, do and I would help source material and think about the program more generally at a higher level and putting it together and that was a lot of fun and that I think that was probably one of my first the first times I'd used my like transferred the, the knowledge and skills I had 
built in programming and computer science and, and helped others build their skill. And that was, that was really fulfilling. So that's a major highlight of my time at Chesheti. Another, another highlight for me was my robotics class because, um, and you were in that class as well. And it was, um, we started off building um, really simple things with Lego Mindstorm robots. Um, I remember one of the projects we did was Dr. Corsa had a carpenter on campus build a miniature version of an entire campus and just, you know, put that in the front of the lab. And we had that campus, that miniature campus in the lab for about an entire semester. And, and we, would, we would program these little NXT robots to give a tour of this miniature campus. And then once we had done that, we moved to a more sophisticated um, platform, which was, um, what was it called? The TurtleBot, which is a low-cost, yeah, the lo- a low-cost robotics research platform that allows you to program a, basically a Roomba vacuum cleaner base and then an Xbox Connect Center for vision processing. And then the, and on top of that uh, was was the ROS um, robot operating system, which uh, is also open source, I, I think it is. Um, yeah, it should be. I'll link to it in the show notes. And yeah, um, and that was a big highlight of my time because then that actually took me into uh, my first job. Uh, my first job after Shesi was coming back to Shesi as a um, assistant robotics research person. Um, so I worked under Dr. Corsa. As soon as I graduated, even before graduation happened, she asked me to come back. And I spent time um, with Fauzi, who was, who was, our, who was our cl- a classmate of ours. Um, what we did was spend time building out um, this um, tour guide robot for the Ashesi campus, which was a lot of fun. But we actually did that in our class as well, didn't we? We did. Uh, in fact, I think we had different teams working on different parts of the robot. I, I worked on the, I think the Android app, that, that was supposed to interact with users. So when you get to a place, it tells you you're at this place. It was named after this person, something like that. What, right. what did you guys work on? Um, I think my team worked on locomotion. So I think what we're supposed to do, and I don't know if we actually did that, was to interface with what you were building so that you would be able to send us a goal, given an origin um, location for the robot. <laughs> we, I think, I think we, we did achieve some sort of integration. I remember that we did. We're able to send messages from the Android app to the um, robot, and the robot was able to say that, okay, here's my goal. And then I think it was able to navigate to that goal. And that's what we did at first. And then what Fauzi and I, so I think also the locomotion team, um, you know, taking the messages and telling the robot that here's, here's your, the location you should be, um, you should be visiting. Um, so that was a big highlight of my time at Chesi. Another was uh, my thesis, you know, which was a lot of fun. Um, so my thesis was, which was my capstone project. So at Chesi, um, like any other university, at the end of your four years, you're required to do a capstone project. And I chose to do a thesis. And my thesis was um, trying to figure out if we could use um, Android devices, so mobile phones, to determine the quality of a road surface um, as you drive over it, and and I know at like at first sound it's it's at first it sounds like what's the point of determining the quality of a road if you're already driving over it? But then you could take that data and superimpose um, that data on maps, for instance, um, and so show people the quality of a road before um, they they plan their routes when they're going out to a place they don't know. Um, and then you could use things like that for figuring out also how to. Um, disburse funds for maintenance of roads. So if the government decided that it was going to use that data, it could 
um, look at all the roads in the city, for instance, and say, okay, which one is most in need of repair? So, so that, that, that led me um, down the path of machine learning. Um, and what I did was built out this Android application that allowed you to affix a phone to the dashboard of a car, drive down that road, and it would collect, the accelerometer would collect data along the axis of the vehicle. Then I came up with an algorithm that once you put in um, triaxial accelerometer data, you'd be able to get a reading on the other end that told you whether the road was good, bad, or fair, which was a lot of fun. And what, what was the outcome of, of the project? Um, it, was, it was really good. I, we got to a point where we could um, clearly determine between good and bad roads. So if you gave me, if I put, if I built, if I give you this app and you drove down the road, I'll be able to tell about 96% of the time that you're driving down a good or bad road. But what was difficult was a fair road. Um, it was, it was, it was really difficult to classify between those three different taxonomies. So um, it was great between good and bad roads. And then once you put in fair roads, it was a little blurry. But but it was great, and I and I got the opportunity to present this at a conference. I entered it into a journal and got accepted. So towards the end of my time at Ashesi, um, I I went to Dakar um, for the Mobile for Development conference. Da- Dakar in Senegal. Dakar in Senegal. Yes, I um, spent a week in Dakar presenting this to um, a group of computer science professional professors, whatnot, and it was was a lot of fun. It was a major highlight. From what I remember, you guys were like the only students there. Yeah, the, I, one of the few students. Yeah. <laughs> I think we were the only undergraduate students there. Undergraduate, um, yeah. There were PhDs um, and people in industry who were doing interesting things um, with with mobile applications. But I think we were the only undergraduate students there, which was a good feeling. So, so that was that was great. And and like all of these things that I talk about, Dr. Kosha was involved in somehow. She was my thesis um, supervisor. Um, she actually said to me, hey, look, I think you should enter this into um, a publication. She was my um, robotics professor. She was my th- my first employer. She asked me to come back to Ashesi to do research in robotics and also to be her teaching assistant. She was the person who put together um, ARX, um, which I had a lot of fun with. She literally got me into programming by teaching me programming in a way that I enjoyed immensely. And then when I decided to make the decision to um, switch to a computer science major. She was a person I went and had a conversation with. So I cannot overstate her influence in my in my career and the trajectory that I've gone along. Yeah, I, I cannot express my gratitude to, to Dr. Kosa. Yeah, I hope she listens to this podcast. I hope she both, does. We are both very grateful. <laughs> <laughs> I hope she does. Um, yeah, so Ashesi was a lot of fun. And my journey through computer science has been a lot of fun. Really rewarding. Yeah, I would say it's pretty much the same here. I actually started programming one year before Ashesi. And it wasn't fun. I started learning, what was it, C++? And it was not fun at all. It's not what I had imagined programming was. (laughs) (laughs) And then in programming, uh, I think it's programming too, Dr. Costa, she made it it really fun. Mm. And I think she rekindled my my love for for programming. Why why do you think that changed? Like, why do you think that you, you disliked it in the beginning? I don't know. Maybe maybe, maybe it's the tutorials that, that I started learning with. Right. And also maybe my English wasn't as good as it is now. Right. But then having Dr. Corsa introduce us to object-oriented programming, I think that made sense. Like the idea of object-oriented programming where uh, objects in your code represent objects in the real world. Yeah. You said something that... Sorry, but you Go said ahead. something that um, piqued my interest um, about the language. 
Um, mm-hmm. as, a, as a person who was a native French speaker, do you think that programming is exclusive of non-English speakers? Oh, it definitely is, but I don't think it's a big deal. I think there's value. I think there's value in having one language, so English. Whether you're programming in China or or in in Benin, like you sort of have one universal language. And English is actually not that hard to learn <laughs> compared it's to other languages. It's probably one of the easiest languages to learn. Right, right. Fair enough. I mean, it was, it's, I've always thought about that, but also as a person who is a native English speaker, I haven't necessarily been in the position to make a call on that. Um, mm-hmm. But it's good to hear that from the, the perspective of, of others who have been in that position. Okay. Great. So so what did you do after HSE? Um, so I stayed at Ashesi after, after graduating, I stayed there for about a year and a half, um, doing research in robotics and being a teaching assistant. And then, um, about a year and a half into that, Dr. Corsa called me to her office and said to me that, Delali, I think it's time to consider doing a PhD. And that scared me. Um, you know, and, and I said back to her, hey, look, I've been faking this thing for four years. Or, <laughs> or at this point, for five years, I've, I've gone to a chassis and I've faked it and I have convinced everybody that I am uh, good at it. I have come back and I've done research robotics and I have been a teaching assistant and I have convinced myself and others yet again that I've been able to do this. And now you want to go expose me in a PhD program in a way. Yeah, the imposter syndrome was heavy at the time. Um, yeah, and and that was my first like the first time I'd heard the idea expressed, um, or like even even brought to mind that there was this idea that um, you're able to convince yourself that you're not good enough, even when um, history shows that you are. Um, so when she, when she said that to me, um, I I really considered what I was doing. Um, I was having a lot of fun with it, but I also hadn't necessarily thought about my trajectory in the big picture. And I was just doing what excited me in the moment. Um, and so that gave me reason to pause and think. Um, and also another reason was that I'd got some feedback from a few of the students I was uh, a teach- for the course I was a teaching assistant for that. I was a horrible teacher. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, I-, I got feedback from students that I made them feel stupid when I explained things to them. Um, and and and, I, and that's something that made me reflect. But it was a moment of self awareness that was really difficult to accept. But then eventually I did, um, and I and I made a decision. And not that you cannot learn to be a good teacher. Um, I don't I, I don't think I was willing to at the time spend spend the effort and time I needed to to do that. And also teaching people in a university setting, I think, is a very sensitive thing. Um, I don't think it's something that you should be experimenting on students with. But back to Ashesi, I I. I, I decided that it was time to leave, but I did it gradually. I didn't have the guts to just leave because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I wasn't sure whether I wanted to go down the route of academia or if I wanted to go to industry. So what I said to Dr. Korsha was that I was, um, I wanted to um, go into industry and do a more traditional industry job, um, but have one foot in a chassis. So come back to a chassis maybe twice a week, um, but then spend three days a week doing other things. And I was fortunate enough to find a job that allowed me to do that. Um, so while I was at Chessy, um, I, I was, I had the opportunity to go present some work that I was doing at, um, the Kofi Annan ICT center. I think it's AITI. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Yes. Um, and, and while I was doing a presentation on that, there was somebody in the audience who asked me a few questions 
and I made nothing of this. But then after the presentation, um, he came up to me and said, hey, look, uh, let's, let's have a chat. And that's how I met my next employer. Um, and he was the founder of Snoocode, which was a startup that was um, trying to solve the problem of addressing in Ghana. The, the point of Snoocode was to um, leapfrog um, the idea of traditional addressing and give people a digital address which could then be, be mapped and, and people could use existing tools like Google Maps to find directions to those. Um, and I thought it was an interesting problem to solve. And so I signed on as the first developer for Snoocode. And so I, I worked building Android applications, um, AP, web APIs, um, and eventually iOS applications for, for Snoocode. So I spent three days a week doing that and then two days a week at Ashesi. But then eventually, you know, I realized I couldn't wear those two hats um, and I had to give one up. And I made a decision to leave Ashesi and to join Snoocode um, full time. And so I did, I, I spent about a year at Snoocode um, building out um, the stuff I did. It was very interesting. It was very interesting work because at some point also we decided that we we're going to work with the National Ambulance Service. And so I spent time training um, EMTs, emergency medical technicians, I think is what EMT stands for, in the back of um, ambulances. So I would teach them to use the app um, and then we would run drills. You know, I would we'd sit in the back of an ambulance. Um, people would be at a certain location and would run simulations of um, um, going to um, an emergency situation and timing how much, you know, t- timing our response um, and then trying to better our response time. It was a lot of fun. Um, so I spent about a year and a half doing that as well. And then um, at some point I decided that it was time to move and then I moved to ALU, which is where I am now. So tell me about that decision because you actually had to move out of Ghana. Was that a big deal? It was a big deal for me and it was my first time out of Ghana, um, a prolonged amount of time out of the country. Um, it was a difficult decision, as I think it, it, it is for most people. Um, there was a lot to think about. There was thinking about, you know, family and my friends and the idea of leaving them uh, on one hand. And then on the other hand, there was the excitement that came with, you know, relocating and moving to another country and experiencing new cultures and travel um, and living on a tropical island, which is, is an incredible thing, um, which is where ALU is at Mauritius, a beautiful tropical island, and getting to do all of those things. Um, so there was there was a lot of tension but eventually I thought it would be a good thing to do, to, to do interesting work in a, in a field that I think is really, really important, education and rethinking it. Um, and being part of, you know, a group of people that are trying um, this audacious um, thing. Um, and I thought it would be fun to, to, to do that. And, and, and eventually I decided to make the move. Well, after I weighed up all of the things, I, I realized that, look, I could come home um, frequently to, to have spend time with my family and my friends. Um, I could, there's a phone. I could, I could call them. I could text them. You were in Ghana recently, right? I was in Ghana throughout December. Um, so I spent all of December in Ghana, which was an incredible amount of fun. I can imagine. I mean, I miss, I miss. Ghana. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the thing is, I, I came to Ghana when I was 17. So all my meaningful friendships uh, happened in Ghana. Yeah. Okay. And leaving all of that behind, man. <laughs> it, was, it was hard. <laughs> and where, where are you based now? Um, so I'm currently based in Estonia. Okay. The digital country. Oh, yes. That yeah. one. Yep. <laughs> it'll, it'll, be curious, it'll be really interesting to reverse these roles and have you do an interview, like, you know, talk through your journey. 
I would, one, day. One, one day we'll do that. Um, but yes, so that, that's how I got to ALU. Uh, so there's this question that I ask all my guests or that I'm going to ask all my guests, considering yes. that you're the first one. <laughs> <laughs> so as someone who is part of the African tech ecosystem, are, are there any interesting trends that you're noticing? Um, so in terms of trends, I think that's um, something that excites me a lot is um, you know, the digitization of the informal economy in, in, in Africa. I mean, there's the very sexy, um, glossy um, side of tech, which is building all these like really fancy um, applications that do interesting things. But I think that what will take us over the ledge is, in a good way, um, is um, actually building technology that affects, um, you know, vendors, um, artisans, taxi drivers, farmers, you know. Yeah, so I think applying technology to the informal economy and digitizing it um, will have a very significant impact. Also, just because of how much representation that has in the African economy. It, I think by far that is the largest part of the, um, the, the economy in most African countries. It's informal. But I think that a lot of things need to, to happen to aid that. Like there need to be um, infrastructural, infrastructural development um, that you know, supports the digitization of, of, of the informal economy. Um, I think like SaaS will, um, so software as a service will play a huge role in the development of the informal economy. Um, and I'm seeing things happen, like, you know, Complete Pharma. Um, Complete Pharma, so I was, I was recently at the Republica conference in, in Accra um, in December, and, and I met the founder of a startup called Complete Pharma, um, which, which is basically farming as a service. Um, where hmm. how, how does that work? Farming as a service. Farming as a service, right? Um, I mean, everything as is, is, is a service these days. But but this works really well, I think. Um, in my estimation of things, it's such a great idea. And and how it works is, um, you know, there's a push for young people to go into farming, and for us to 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 um think more carefully about how we produce our food, and um, agriculture isn't sexy, right? And a lot of people will not go into it because they just there's there's a lot of barriers to entry and they want to be a farmer. But what this allows you to do is it basically brings together people who want to go into farming but don't want to get their hands dirty, um, i.e. you and I, people like us, and um, people who have the, the, the technical know-how um, that's required to farm. So people who have been doing this for a long time with a lot of experience of who know how to put together a farm and take it from um, planting your um, seedlings to harvesting. And and what Complete Farmer does is brings those two people together. So you and you or I could decide that we wanted to start a farm and own a farm, but mm-hmm. not, not want to do it ourselves. We could sign up with Complete Farmer and Complete Farmer will um, put us in touch with um, not not directly put us in touch, but provide the service of farming for us, and and we mm-hmm. are able to you know pay for it, and they execute on the farming. I own I own the farm, but I don't have to do any work. And beyond just putting you know these two people together, and and as it goes, it's it's the Uber for farming or the Airbnb for farming. Um, yeah. But but beyond doing that. 
they're doing very interesting things in analytics, for instance. So I, what what I got from the founder was that they've you know they've littered the farm with sensors and um, and so um, whoever signs up for this has a dashboard where they can see the health of their crop, and um, you know there's there's so many ways you could you could spin this you could. Um, bring in, um, you know, drone monitoring um, to, to look at what the health of the farm is. Um, you could put that on a dashboard and display that to a person who owns a farm. And they can see in real time what's happening with their farm. Um, they can see what their estimated yield is. Um, and, and I think that's, that's such an interesting idea. And I think that can be applied um, to a lot of different disciplines, so, so bringing technology to, to those sectors of the African economy um, and then providing things like, you know, a point of sale system, um, accounting portals, um, inventory management, you know, and then going beyond the technology itself and doing things like access to credits. But I think that using technology as the driver will get us there because once technology enters the space, it will pick the ears of um, a lot of other players. And then, you know, if you think about something like SoftBank, um, SoftBank's in Silicon Valley. Um, you know, I have, I know I feel very strongly about um, SoftBank's, but then access to credit is access to credit, you know. Um, so I think that t- technology um, can be like a really strong driving force um, by, by being what it is, like technology being technology, but also by... Um, driving interest in those areas and allowing other players to come in and be part of um, that ecosystem. Um, for me, that's that's like about the most interesting thing happening in tech right now. Nice, nice, nice. So do you, are you working on anything that you want to plug? Um, I would, I would like to say yes, but no, um, that's one of the things that, <laughs> that's okay. That, that's one of the things that I don't think I do enough of. Um, Building things on the side, um, you know, community engagement. Um, yeah, uh, I, I, I haven't done a great job engaging, um, you know, like the Ghanaian developer community or the Mauritian developer community. Um, I think I'm, I think I'm bad at Twitter, which, which is, mm. which is a big part of my non-engagement. I think Twitter is a great place to engage. Um, Definitely. But I think I'm just really bad at Twitter. I used to be good at Twitter in the early days. Um, right after high school, um, sometime in 2010, I, I got mm-hmm. Twitter, but now I don't. Um, I, I think I, I think I'm an uninvolved bystander for for the most part. Um, I'm a, I'm a consumer, but I'm not a publisher at all. Um, I I don't I don't really get it. Um, I'm not I'm not good at tweeting. But anyway, um, I I, I wish I was better at community engagement. Um, so yeah, no, I do not have a plug um to 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 place here. You know, if I if I do have a plug, it'll be for Complete Pharma, which I've talked about. I think the idea is such an interesting one, and it's it's doing exactly what I think technology should be doing, um, for the African economy. Great! I think we've come to the end of this episode, Delali. It was great having you on the show, having you share your story. Thank you for coming. <laughs> you're you're welcome, Kasir, and thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun having this conversation with you. This was the first episode of the African Developers Podcast. If you enjoyed this and you would like to hear more, please subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. We are available on Google Podcast, Spotify, iTunes, Pocket Cast, Overcast, pretty much everywhere. You can also follow us on Twitter at AfroDevPodcast. See you soon.